0: Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And I'm Chris Noble. And today we have a wonderful guest on the show, Jeff Fromm. And Jeff is a friend. Um, I I have met him at many conferences. We've shared uh, meals and many, many conversations about purpose. But Jeff is a, a prolific author. And he has written his fourth book, which is called The Purpose Advantage. And it's a terrific, terrific both commentary on the state of purpose today, but also it's got some great, great um, suggestions and exercises for companies of all sizes to truly analyze um, the core ingredients to develop an authentic purpose. So we're going to dive into Jeff's uh, prolific writings, um, some great cases is about purpose. And we're going to have a super conversation today. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, we, are th- we are thrilled. And so what we always like to do to start is just, you know, let's get some background. And, you know, why do you like to do these incredible books and talk to so many people, millennials, Gen Z, experts of all kinds? You know, what got you started in, in being a prolific writer?
2: maybe it was a coincidence a bit Uh, in 2010 and 11, I led the first study of millennials as consumers in a joint research project between the Boston consulting group and Barclay Uh, and Barclay's where I work and I'm a shareholder. And so that longitudinal study was done before Pew had done work on millennials as consumers. And the reason I I did it was we were starting to get some questions from clients and prospects. And I went to Google and I searched and I got junk back kind of weird. I'm like, wow, uh, Google search yielding junk. I wonder if I'm on the wrong topic. And so, uh, I did some interviews with some folks at Forrester and the short version of it was, they said, you're probably not on the wrong topic. You just found gold in California before anyone else knew it was gold. So you might want to think about it. So that research project, uh, was, uh, 2010 and 11. And, uh, then the first book was marketing to millennials in 2013. And, uh, I guess the rest sort of fell into place. I don't know. A little bit lucky.
0: How many experts have you talked to and research have you reviewed and cases have you, companies have you talked to in all of your writings? It must be really a large amount.
2: Well, I can't give you a very accurate answer, but I'm going to give you an estimate. I mean, I've got probably more than a thousand articles out and usually there's at least one person per article. And, And then the four books... Okay. Uh, The four books each require a lot of conversations. I mean, you read the Purpose Advantage, and you never saw an interview from the CEO of Ben and Jerry's, but I interviewed him for half an hour. Right. So, you know, there's plenty of material that never makes it into the into the book or the white paper or things like that. So it's it's not a small number of people that I've talked to over over the last ten years.
0: And so let's talk about the modern consumer, because you do reference that deeply in the Purpose Advantage. But, you know, when I met you and it was um, at a CMN event in Orlando and, you know, you were there talking about we were on actually a panel about millennials. And so You know a lot about modern consumers today, so I'm sure our listeners would love to gain insights, especially as um, young millennials and Gen Z, very, very different generations.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, one of the big challenges that business strategy professionals face is to sort of move past the common myths we hear and read about around generations and deal with the hard data. We'll hear things like, you know, millennials are all broke and unemployed. It's like, yeah, and the fastest growing cohort of people making $100,000 or more in this country are millennial women over the age of 30, and there are 10,000 of them today we are going to have a child you know, and 10,000 yesterday and 10,000 tomorrow. So a lot of what I did uh, early on and continue to do um, to some extent is just debunk the myths about millennials. And then as we think about modern consumers, I think they're very discerning. And, and the big myth is that they're disloyal. And I think that's a really rich territory for brands trying to create
1: value. So actually, Jeff, I'd love to talk about how to, to create that shift in mindset with the brands. So in, in my own work, I've switched from calling millennials millennials to calling them shoppers under 40, just to bring home the fact that that cohort is aging, that they're having kids now, and that they are just as you said, they've got salaries, they're engaging as consumers. How do you bring that home for brands? Like, what's the the way to make that visceral for brands? Uh, depends on the uh,
2: situation. Uh, if I'm giving a, a talk and I speak at events pretty frequently, I try to hit it right, sort of square one. I mean, you could be millennial by birth year and anti-millennial by mindset, and you could be 55 years old and have a millennial mindset. Well, that's really good to hear. And, and, the, and, and the fact of this matter is when we talk about a lot of the trends, the center of the bullseye on trends for baby boomers can usually be predicted by following youth culture you want to find the next tech trend what's hot today with younger people because i wasn't the first to use venmo nor am i the first to use mobile pay when i go to starbucks but i use them all the time now and so whether we're talking about food travel or technology the canary in the coal mine are the youth culture trends that become mass adopted and so um As I try to debunk myths, I try to understand the audience and what they know and assume through some interviews ahead of any kind of a meeting in person or phone call. And then some people quickly move past the myths and some people want to hug them a little longer because it it feels good, but it's not usually very healthy. (laughs)
0: So so let's talk about purpose and millennials and Gen Z. Um, Obviously, the purpose advantage is a roadmap, um, how companies can truly be introspective and then be strategic about their purpose. But you know so much about these generations. Um, You've got a lot of nuances. So um, why don't we just start at a high level in terms of purpose and Maybe uh, I know that Chris, you're calling them shoppers, you know, under 40, but maybe older millennials, younger millennials and older Gen Z. You know, we'd love to know the nuances.
2: Well, both of you have tremendous expertise in the topic of purpose and sustainability. So uh, probably preaching to the the choir. But my thesis uh, is derived from, from data, and that is purpose alone is probably a failing strategy for most brands. But purpose in combination with one of the other mindsets that I've described in the book is often a winning strategy. And it's the combination of the two mindsets, which there are six mindsets we found in the cross-generational research that's a winning view. So, you know, simple example, Chobani. I think Chobani is a very strong, powerful brand. Uh, It's clearly disrupted the uh, breakfast category. Uh, And I think if they didn't have amazing flavors and packaging, uh, it wouldn't be that powerful a brand. But when you add a dose of purpose not sugar to the brand uh then all of a sudden uh it's a very powerful story and so it's not that purpose is not important it is important and sustainability as well it's that if that's the only thing you're doing it's probably not going to be the winning thing and and that goes to that whole comment i briefly made you know consumers are discerning and they trade up and they trade down and if you prefer the term shoppers that's fine but but they trade up and trade down and strong brands they get they get a little premium and they trade up and weak brands. it's like I can shop private label, and that's how I balance my budget. I balance my budget because I'm a day trader, and that's not disloyal that's savvy
0: that's a good comment that's not disloyal, that's savvy. so what are their insights um about millennials and purpose um are they you know some people say actually with Gen Z the Gen Z leads with purpose and that the cost is quite secondary or the salary in their job is secondary to what does the company stand for so give us some more nuances about both of these uh, generations
2: sure i haven't seen anything to that effect i'm not i'm not sure if it's true or not um, I know that we're in the middle of another large scale study. Uh, it's a cross generational study, not to surprise you, of course, since my, my prior three books and, and work was sort of on generations and we're looking at purpose and sustainability by generational cohort so that we can actually, you know, quantitatively break apart, uh, what that looks, looks like and be able to put sort of, you know, R squared and all that kind of good stuff to it. What I would say is this, uh, I think Gen Z and Millennials care about things like money. Like that's a myth. You know, uh, I, they want to work for a company that does good and adds to the world. Uh, but if the salary at Company A is twenty thousand dollars and the salary at Company B, then you know Company A's, uh, you know, not, you know, it, it, it matters. Like benefits matter. All these things matter. Again, the the whole notion of discerning. It's like I expect to be paid a market salary. I expect fair benefits. But if I feel like I'm adding good to society at company at one company and not the other, then I'm I'm going to prefer to work there, and they and and while they're not probably going to work there forever, there are plenty of millennials and Gen Zers who um, do plan to work hard. Uh, One of the big things we found in our Gen Z research, uh, which we published, was uh, there's a competitive fire among Gen Z, and money is a cool topic. Uh, and, And we came out and talked about that a couple of years ago, and you're starting to see some articles pop up in the major national news media again, like, you know, it's cool to actually have a branch bank, and money's important. Yeah, money was important two years ago, too. It's just people were talking about the myths of, you know, nobody cares about money, they only care. It's like, no, that's just... Another one of the myths that comes out because uh, pe- people tend to deal with these little eccentricities. I think that the strong brands understand it takes sort of a whole brand, right? It takes purpose and sustainability, and it takes benefits if we're talking about employees. It takes culture. Internal culture matters. Uh, all of these things matter. And, and so consumers and, and employees today, they, they have choices, and, and, they, and, they, and they make those choices uh, every day and and it's easy to see that there is a connection between love and money because the loved brands
1: are making more money so I wonder if there's a a, a larger connection there even uh, it seems like millennials uh, and even gen Z to some degree have kind of a growth mindset right so so purpose can be part of your growth as a person just like it can be part of your growth as a company your skills as you develop them right I, I you know we we have um, some, some understanding that millennials are looking for skill development as well as career development, as well as financial development. And, and all that I think fits into a growth mentality. How does that fit to the mindsets that you see, right? When you've got your six mindsets, where does, where does personal growth and growth and career come into that into play? Um,
2: I think that's a great point. And, uh, I, I think that, uh, one that, I'm thrilled that you brought out. I think as people move further into their careers, uh, young people absolutely want to learn new things. And when they stop learning new things, that's when they find other opportunities. And so that growth mindset that you referred to is a a terrific way to frame up the challenge that companies really have. And that is, how do I continue to create engagement uh, with people who can get bored? And it's not unnatural to get bored Uh, and so you have to find ways to bring freshness to that relationship and to challenge people. And they and not everyone grows at the same rate, so then that adds some complexity, right? Because that growth mindset for different employees can occur at different moments in time depending on their
1: speed, right? No, That makes sense. And purpose is kind of one of those tools for engagement with that employee. Skill development might be in the Yeah, for sure. And I think the best-in-class companies do
2: a good job of uh, functional training and then life skills sort of opportunity training. I mean, how many employees work uh, at companies in the financial industry and have a lack of financial knowledge. You know, it's or work in a healthcare industry in this country and, and don't have really strong knowledge about health and wellness. And it's, it's really sad and unfortunate. You know, we see people who have all kinds of health issues and, and you know, and they work for a hospital and they, and they don't know the facts about what they should or shouldn't do. It just, sort of like befuddling to me. So I think there's uh, a lot of opportunity for companies to think about their employment brand. And I think that growth mindset is uh, a nice way to think about the employment brand.
0: And so let's bridge to Mod Pizza. Um, it's it's an organization that um, I'm I'm fascinated by. I love that they're looking at second chance employment. I think that's a key issue, especially in our very, you know, our tight labor market. So tell our listeners there's a melody about this this company and how well it's it's so authentic. And to your point, um, you know, it's taking purpose in action, which you make so strong in your book. So tell us about mine.
2: Sure, uh, I was giving a talk at the National Restaurant Association on a Sunday in Chicago. I'd gotten up at five thirty in the morning and flown to Chicago and. Uh, at the end of my talk, a couple and their son who appeared to be about 14, 15 years old walked up to me to, to chat. Everyone had laughed and people had asked questions. And I thought this nice couple. I'll I'll chat with them, and we started talking. And he said he started a pizza company called Mod Pizza. And I said, you know, I'm not familiar with it, honestly. Uh, Tell me a little bit about it. So they're telling me about it, and I'm listening, and I'm getting intrigued. I mean, I've not heard of this brand, so I don't assume it's a high growth brand. And the more I listen, the more I'm like, you know, wow, you've really given a lot of thought to your brand strategy for such a young company. And one thing led to another, and. um, and Scott Nally and uh, had, had uh, were the co-founders who had pulled me aside, and uh, you know, Scott Scott said basically this this talk transformed my view of consumer trends. And you know, I just you know he was so appreciative, and then I became enamored with what he was trying to do, um, which was basically not create another pizza company. I mean, does America need another pizza chain? You know, there's, there's quite a few of them. And uh, <laughs>
0: no, we don't, we don't need the galleries. Right.
2: <laughs> and, uh, and he said, you know, I'm not trying to just create another pizza chain. I'm, I'm trying to create, you know, uh, an ethos and, and a culture and, and his strategy is is the, what I call a flywheel strategy. And I refer to that in the book as, as well um, when I showed the example with 7th Gen. And the flywheel strategy is I'm going to do something that's really uh, going to benefit society, which ties to my business strategy. So if you run a restaurant, your you know number one or two challenge is going to be attract and retain talent who can give a guest experience that you want to give. And to do that as you said, in this labor market is tough, right? I mean, it's it's not easy to find people to, to, to do that. And so the second chance culture allows him to uh, open his arms wider to people who are looking for opportunities and get passed over. Maybe they had a brush with the law. Maybe they had a gap in employment. And some of those people stay at Mod and some leave. And he's happy when they leave because they've moved on to another life stage. And he's happy when they stay and they continue to grow. But as a result of this second chance strategy, he's got a business model advantage because he has lower costs of training, lower turnover. And if you run a business like this, that, this is a multi-multi-million dollar kind of uh, expense and huge advantage in terms of guest experience because his employees love his brand more. And We all have been to places where the employees don't love the brand. And you walk out saying, yeah, the food was okay, but... You know, I don't think I want to go back there because I didn't really have a great experience. So uh, I love what he did. And the way we met was coincidental um, in the sense that I didn't know who he was and, until we were probably 20, 30 minutes in. And I've started like, well, how many units do you have? And <laughs> uh, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, he's built a billion dollar business. And you wouldn't have known it. It was a Sunday and we were both wearing jeans and I'd finished this talk and uh, we ha- we spent an hour together the first time we met, uh, just by chance. Yeah. And then I said, you know, I love what you're doing. Could I interview you for, uh, Forbes, uh, yeah. cause I write at Forbes and, uh, and from there I asked if I could do another interview for the book. And he's always been pretty gracious with, with his time. And, uh, I hope he's successful cause he seems like a genuinely, uh, you know, nice, nice guy.
0: But he, but he is successful. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. He's the, been wildly successful yeah. so far. Did Yeah, how many? <laughs> hundred million. Did you, it's over four hundred million. Four hundred
1: locations. Right? So I think they're doing all
2: right. Yeah, yeah four hundred locations. He, he's in a category that's not very high growth, and he's he's yeah built a billion dollar business uh, on the on the model around that culture.
0: Go deeper on Second Chance and how that really permeates how he treats his employees and how they treat customers, because you go into detail in the purpose advantage. And I think that knowing, you know, let's go deep and let's understand, because I think it's hard work, but it can pay off extraordinarily. And this is, again, a social issue. This isn't even a social issue. This is how he lives. This is how he believes his philosophy about people.
2: Our team has a ton of experience in the restaurant space, which is probably part of why I ended up speaking at this National Restaurant Association event. And when I was talking to him, he was talking about, you know, the whole notion of guest experience and how do you create a guest experience? I mean, the truth is I don't get served by Starbucks by the CEO of Starbucks and, and Scott and Allie don't serve Mod's customers. Frontline employees serve guests. And to create an amazing frontline employee experience, you have to create that culture and to create that culture. You're going to have to attract people who are committed to that. And, you know, these people that he's brought into the fold uh, are really appreciative of having a job. Because if you can't find a job because you had a scrape with the law and then you have a job, you are much more appreciative. And so he has a very high performance culture that is very authentic based on the structural decisions he made around trying to help people. You know, have a second chance, uh, and those second chances in some cases lead people to become promoted within the organization. They become manager, general manager, etc. In other cases, those people leave to find other things, and that and he celebrates that. Right? If if somebody's leaving because they have a bigger, better opportunity in life, and this allowed them to get back on their feet, that's great. But in total, he's got this culture that's much more powerful and vibrant than what you would find in a typical. Uh, you know, quick service restaurant type environment or fast casual restaurant type environment. And that's a very real thing that creates advantage because at the end of the day, he's serving the same pizzas probably. I mean, you might. some people would argue his are better or not better, but, you know, it's not like he has pepperoni and someone else doesn't or he has mozzarella and someone else doesn't. At the, <laughs> at the end of the day, they have, uh, right. you know, a set of ingredients and a price point. And, and consumers pay a small premium for a mock pizza, right? I mean, he is not the low cost alternative. Uh, so,
0: do, do his customers know about Second Chance? Is there are there you know any flyers, or is it on his website? You know, how do customers know, or they just don't know? It just comes through the service. Uh, Scott and
2: I had a long conversation about about this topic, and I said, you know, I I know from experience and research that. If your consumer knew your second-chance strategy, they would rate the brand completely differently and your share of stomach would go up dramatically. My guess is very, very few of his consumers know that because he's a young brand and because he's very soft-spoken as a brand in terms of how they communicate that, which means over time, as the word starts to get out – that brand will become exponentially more powerful. Now, I think there's probably difference from one geography to another. So in Seattle, for example, where they got their start, it's entirely possible that more people know the brand and more people know the second chance story. However, when you move to markets that are newer, it's likely that fewer people know the brand and fewer people know the story. So, I think that's an intentional decision uh, that they made that they want to be soft-spoken about it. They want to get credit for it. They just don't want to be in your face about it because they're doing it to do the right thing. And they feel like if they're too forward on that topic, then it creates distrust and and it's not genuine. So I think it's a, it's a a complex uh, issue, uh, but I think it's a lot of upside and runway because I know from our research with other uh, brands uh, in the sectors he's in when you start to get credit for something like that it changes how you view uh, a product or service experience and, and I think on the whole across the whole geography that he's in uh, he's probably not getting too much credit on that which again I view as a good thing because a gap
0: it'll, it'll be interesting needs to there's watch an his opportunity growth.
2: Yeah, 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 it's an opportunity. And I've told him just as, you know, that yeah. and when we when we met, I said, you know, you don't want to be too soft spoken, but the fact that matter is, um, you know, for example, if Dairy One Dairy Queen's one of multiple brands we work with and if someone hands you a, a Dairy Queen blizzard and it's not uh, turned upside down, you you wouldn't view the product the same way as if it's turned upside down, which is how we've you know, hoped that our employees serve that product. And, 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 and you probably knew that we worked with them from our children miracle network uh, days and my keynote where I shared some examples at that event. So, so that's the kind of stuff you can see in research. You can literally measure, Oh wow, these people had it served this way. These people had it served that way. And the, and the difference in terms of their view of the brand is wildly different. And so my comments to Scott are grounded in a lot of data across a lot of brands where I'm quite sure uh, that that gap is one of the biggest opportunities he has for growth.
1: It, it seems like the second chance bit is, is kind of the internal brand, right? And, and it reflects out, radiates out through employees and through, um, just as you said, more subtle action. But they also have a, a, a fairly loud partnership with Generosity Feeds you know, and, and they when they open new stores, they dedicate the first day of proceeds to a local charity. Uh, they host generosity feeds events for teens and schools that want to give back. Um, so, so talk about that partnership and, and about the the visibility of it and how it reflects back to their Gen Z and millennial focus. So, I
2: have not actually spoken to scott about generosity feeds in the past it feels like the right thing to do consistent with his brand but i also feel like a lot of brands would do something like that uh, as part of their ethos and strategy uh, i don't know that i see the longitudinal kind of uh differentiation with that compared to other brands as opposed to the second chances which give them that internal brand culture advantage which you know, when you talk about a growth mindset, to me, that's where the big aha uh-huh is, is he's created that growth mindset. That,
1: that's super interesting. That's a really good distinction between kind of cultural purpose and a cause marketing campaign.
2: Yeah. And I think that's the, to me that the, your language around growth mindset, I think that's, that's what he's built. He, he wants people to grow in their career and, and take on more responsibility, either within mod or or leave and pursue their dreams. And either way, I think he wins. He has an alumni network of of people who love his brand. And how many people have an alumni network who, of people who love your brand? You know?
0: It sounds like he's been studying Starbucks.
2: Well, he is in Seattle, and I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if... Yeah, and, you know, in terms yeah. of
0: how can they advocate for my brand if I don't advocate for them? So, brilliantly done. Let's turn to Seventh Generation. Um, you Years and years ago, I don't want to say how many, I got to work with Jeffrey Hollander when he created that brand. And it was, you know, he was part of the group with Anita Roddick and Ben and & Jerry's and Tom's of Maine um, in terms of just being a really niche brand with a very, you know, very special vision of um, health and the type of products, it should, it what we should put in our bodies or on our bodies or how we should clean our clothes, things like that. Um, He has since left the company and you profiled um, extensively Seventh Generation um, in the Purpose Advantage. So can you talk about how they've gone mainstream and how they keep their soul and um, how they are marketing and connecting with their customers?
2: Yes, uh, that's an awesome uh, segue, Carol. I think that uh, I had the chance to interview – The the CEO, um, Joey Bergstein, on a couple of occasions. And then I've actually had the chance to invite him to New York to do a live event together uh, when we launched the book. And, you know, they compete against an amazingly strong brand called Tide. Tide is probably exponentially better known in terms of brand awareness. And and Tide has, uh, by other authorities, um, got one of the premier Cause marketing programs with high loads of hope. Uh, it's been voted, I believe, you know, best in class at multiple events and multiple times. And yet he wins at shelf, in in the sense he's smaller, but he gets a ten percent price premium at shelf, and he's growing very rapidly. He showed his sales curve at the event we had in New York. Uh, Recently, And, uh, you know, it's not like laundry detergents, the most sexy category we could be talking about. In fact, I could argue laundry detergent on a sort of spectrum might be sort of toward the bottom of that spectrum. And so what they've done is they've really leaned into creating a brand. And I think they've done that by using purpose and sustainability as a verb. And by verb, I mean literally through brand action because we can look and see that purpose is not a verb. That's a, you know, so I'm speaking much more metaphorically, right? Uh, But, but when I talk to him and when he talks about what they're doing, it's a mindset. And when I say mindset, that's everything from most companies go on retreats; they go on advances. Okay, they don't do retreats; they advance. Uh, Tide launched pods because because pods were a new product that made a lot of sense, and on a risk analysis basis uh, pods would be the kind of thing any company that's successful would do. Uh, Joey doesn't believe in risk analysis. Joey, uh, uh, when I say that, I'm sure they do some level of risk analysis, but Joey knew that, um, uh, that if they introduced pods, uh, that, uh, they would have the same problems that Tide did. So they simply didn't do it. Okay. And so, you know, it's not just the actions they take; it's the actions they don't take. I'll tell you one of the most impressive things uh, that that I that I saw about this brand, and it wasn't in the book. It was when we were doing our talk in New York. He got out a bottle that's uh, not much bigger than my large coffee cup, and it's sixty six loads of seventh generation in a small bottle, hyper concentrated with a cap that's meant to dose because it's so concentrated. You would only want to use a little bit of the liquid. And by creating that, he creates an Amazon specific friendly product that uses less gasoline and shipping that brings the cost down to the consumer. That's more friendly to the environment. So it's that level of new product development that is going into his Thinking. So, when I talked briefly earlier about sort of that whole brand, the, the, the notion of purpose and sustainability only goes so far. If he's not creating new products like that, if he's not investing on consumers' behalf in actions, then consumers are savvy. And Tide is a wonderful, powerful brand. And I'm not going to pay a small premium at shelf. But there are a lot of people, even though the category is kind of not that sexy, who understand what that brand does who are voting with their wallets and paying more at shelf. And anyone listening to this podcast can walk into wherever they shop for wine detergent and do their own quick analysis. And you'll see on average that they're getting an extra buck a bottle.
0: And that's, that's going towards a lot of their innovation and, and you didn't mention why they chose not to do a pod. Can you explain that?
2: Sure. Uh, I'll paraphrase what, what Joey said. The risk analysis that, that they did would probably be the same kind of sophisticated analysis any large brand would do, which says, you know, small number of people are going to be injured, maybe maybe a few seriously, because they'll ingest the pod. Because the pod looks like candy.
0: And you're talking about – yeah, you're talking about kids and that all of a sudden yeah, kids, kids, oh, my kids, God, yummy. Let's teenagers. Eat it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, right. And so at Seventh Generation, you know, they they, you know, they had a new product roadmap that included a lot of things, just like any successful brand. And uh, ultimately, they said, "Look, uh, we know this is going to happen. Uh, we understand the economic costs would make it, cause us to say we should launch this product because, you know, it's a small number of people, it's a small number of thousands of dollars, and we'll get a lot of millions of dollars more if we do it." They didn't do it. They didn't. They didn't move because that's not consistent with their principles and their brand. And so at the core, uh, what Joey says, uh, whether it's the culture of the company or new products or any or the brand actions they take, um, we have to be thinking forward seven generations. Is this the right decision? not sophisticated risk analysis that says we can make a few extra million dollars this year if we move forward.
0: That's that's perfect because they're so consistent with their core and their mission and their vision um, and their purpose for seven generations going forward. Um, in your book and also in your speeches, you talk about that successful purpose-driven brands have functional, emotional, and societal attributes. And so can you, um, if an, if a brand who's listening to this, um, is, you know, they've got the functional emotional, you've got to have that, but they're really trying to add in their societal, um, you know, what are the, you know, first two or three things they need to think about. And that might also bridge to, um, the exercises that you have in the purpose advantage, the initial one.
2: Sure. Carol, it's a, it's a tough question because, um, different brands have different opportunities, right? I mean, we were just talking about seventh generation. If they don't clean uh, my clothes well, then I'm not going to buy the product. Purpose and sustainability only matter, assuming that I feel like I'm getting the same level of cleanliness, the functional benefit that I would get from another great brand like Kyler. So there's a price of admission and it varies by category. And so whether I'm B2B or B2C, we have to separate out category drivers and look at those. I think that, uh, what I usually would suggest, and if, if I was doing this, you know, I would be doing it collaboratively with, with others is to look back a little bit into the history of the company. Why was that company started? What was the original purpose of the company? If, if I'm a small bank in the state of Washington that, that started as a B2B bank making loans to small businesses, you know, then how do I lean back into that history? What, what's true in Tomorrowland that was also true 40 years ago when I started my little company. And in some cases, those founders have moved on. And so you need a company historian or an outside expert who can play company historian to dig in and see, are there some things that have been true for a long time that can be part of the truth we need to, uh, you know, live in the future. The other thing I personally like to think about is mirror images versus mirror images. Mirror images are what's really going on because it's real easy if it's a mirror image. And if it's a mirror image, usually companies get called out and we see them get called out, uh, you know, with failures time and again, because they are creating something that's not true to the core. And, and we could certainly have a conversation about more than a couple failures, uh, that have, have happened, uh, in the recent past. So those are just a couple starting points. The exercises were Specifically, uh, done in collaboration with a couple of my colleagues. One, one woman who spent 15 years in London in the Unilever Sustainable Brands group, working on Ben and Jerry's and other brands, and then a couple other women on my team. We sat down for uh, a couple of weeks and said, "Let's pressure test the exercises we would use um, and have used in the past." Um, when we've been presented different challenges, just like you face when you get presented different challenges by different brands and can you codify it? So there's, there's no perfect answer, but this is an attempt to give people a starting point if they're inspired by the early part of the book in terms of some directional exercises uh, that would perhaps get them further down the road.
0: And and when they start um, who should be in these um, groups, who, uh, what sort of different functions across the company if they're going to get their purpose right
2: well you know it's a, another good question and, and and as you know from doing this yourself it helps when there's a good cross-functional team and that and that can vary from one company to another but if people responsible for supply chain and operations and marketing and Corporate strategy or working collaboratively, it's probably going to get more traction than if it's only in one functional area. Uh, But, you know, obviously, size of company can dictate that. And there are companies where there is, you know, a team that's supposed to lead sustainability and and brand purpose. And so sometimes they need to take the lead role. Uh, I think the challenge as we think about modern consumers and, and, uh, and youth culture and, and what we've been talking about is even really strong brands have to take a half step back uh, and think about this. And, and I think the, the best in case example for me is Patagonia. I mean, here's a company that's consistently been a top performer in terms of purpose and sustainability that reimagined that strategy in the last 12 months. They went from do no harm to protect and defend. And so I think as we talk about youth culture and trends, you know, you you have to think about, okay, where are we today? Where do we want to be in the future? And, and do we have to make some adjustments? Even if we're a successful high purpose brand, are we, are we positioned for Tomorrowland, or, or do we need to, you know, engage outside folks, uh, to to help us think about this and, and reimagine.
1: That, that's a super important point, Jeff. Just because uh, so many brands uh, and and actually you know so many nonprofits. I want to I want to pivot to kind of cross the culture now. Are are facing a aging consumer base or an aging donor base, and they're trying to future proof their brand, right? That's the lingo, and 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 really. I, I think it's less about future proofing and more about um, you know reconnecting and and finding ways to re identify with your core in in what the next world's going to be in and what the next and not trend but kind of what the what the what the future will yeah be. and I think uh, I think it's
2: tough because uh, I think many uh, leaders today know that it matters to the employees they have and matters to the consumers they have so it's it's sort of figuring out what's the balance between the functional and emotional benefits that are important, but also the right dose of purpose and sustainability. When we started the conversation, I told you I thought Shibani was successful in part because of their flavors and their new products. and but, but but I'm not trying to minimize purpose and sustainability. I don't think they'd have the success they have without it. But if they'd only focus on that, I don't think they were there. You know, I think it's it's both and. It's both there, right?
1: Sure, it wouldn't be enough. Yeah yeah so and that that kind of leads me to my question so how do you how do you coach a, a brand when they're trying to uh, both embrace kind of the up-and-coming consumer but they they don't want to lose their existing base but right. how, how do you balance that
2: well um there there are a couple different ways to go about that part of the reason we created that millennial mindset, modern consumer mindset framework that we briefly got into was it was cross-generational so we looked at consumers 16 to 65 around the six themes that we found based on purchase behavior, not stated importance. So I think one way to do it if you're a larger brand is you look at that. The other that we've had come up on multiple occasions is brands have multiple brands in a portfolio so company has four brands, five brands six brands in that portfolio. And so you make decisions in the portfolio around which brands are going to go for which territories. So it depends on the corporate structure and strategy. Uh, sometimes uh, cannibalization can be a good thing. And so you, you have a very deliberate focus on that. And sometimes you, you, you say, okay, you know, we're going to cannibalize our own business. Uh, by making these changes, but we might do it with a, a different brand name or we might do it with uh, a strategy that looks like X. And so that's where it helps to have, back to Carol's question, that cross-functional team together uh, because if I'm on the brand that's, you know, brand X, I only care about, care about my brand, but if I have a corporate view, you know, it's like, okay, but I'm looking corporately at how all five brands perform. And so we have to look at the role of each one in this, in this business.
0: Um, We're unfortunately getting down to the, to the end, end of our podcast, but this has been a fascinating conversation with lots of nuances. We always like to ask our guests, Jeff, what are your top three insights for, you know, our listeners um, who are either evolving uh, their purpose work to be, I love what you said, from do no harm to protect and defend, or whether they are just beginning. So some of your, you know, favorite insights so that they will be successful or at least begin to be on that road to success.
2: Maybe the starting point is to, to agree on sort of what the future Looks like internally uh, across that internal team. Take a half step back as a second point and look at the original history of the company. What was the original purpose? Right, uh, William Lever founded Unilever so people could have access to basic cleaning, and he created a soap. Right, you know. So, what is that original history that you can find, uh, even if the founders long gone? And then, and then finally, you know, to have a reasonable. And modestly patient view about it. Uh, you, know, you don't build a strong brand in, in a day uh, or an hour. And so you have to set benchmarks around what you can achieve and you have to be sort of realistic. And there are trade-offs. You, you have to make trade-offs. In the example of seventh generation, they made a trade-off to not introduce a new product that they spent time and money developing. And that was consistent with their long-term view. And it's hard when you're in a public company, so you have to balance it. And it's uh, it's no different than anything else. It's that balancing and, and the communication internally that allows you to uh, stay on a path.
0: Great. So we are about to be in 2020, and um, there's a lot of the prediction – uh, blogs and articles and such. And so since I have both of you on the phone, I'm going to put you both on the spot. And um, Jeff, what are a couple of your predictions for purpose in 2020? Then I'm going to ask you, Chris.
2: <laughs> Can Chris go first since he sort of like, um, uh, you know, made a ha. Huh. I feel like he should, has to go first. Yeah.
1: I am. I'm happy to go first, Carol. So uh, here's my, my core prediction for 2020 If you look at, uh, golly, the Edelman trust index, and, uh, if you just, you know, read an article online, you can see that public trust in institutions is failing and you can see, uh, how quickly people glom onto stories that are hopeful. Um, almost like a like a life raft in our our current climate and environment, and I think that 2020, um, I, I think we're going to end 2020 with a huge number of people, on, on one side or another, feeling disenfranchised and angry, and I think that the the, the way politics is going to take over the conversation, is just going to stir up and foment more anger. As we go through 2020, it's a it's a real opportunity, although I think a surprising one, for brands to emerge as the conduit of hope and kind of the the, the pointers to a hopeful future. And I think that uh, a lot of large scale nonprofits will join together because they're they're brands of their own of a sort. Um, and I think that you'll see as faith and kind of trust in institutions starts to fail, that brands and and nonprofit partnerships are really going to rise up and provide the hope that uh, we all need to kind of sustain and go forward.
0: So, Jeff, what's your predictions for 2020?
2: Well, I would certainly agree uh, with where Chris was going. You know, when I say the word Volvo, most of the people listening to your podcast would probably say safety. And when I say government, I don't think too many people are going to say collaboration. And so there is a fundamental lack of collaboration that frustrates people on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I think the distrust is is certainly part of that. And, um, you know, millennials and Gen Z want more transparency. So I think when you have organized religion across all flavors of religion, not having the same levels of involvement people are looking for purpose there's a purpose gap and the brands that use purpose as a verb are going to start to fill that gap and the brands that use purpose as a verb and fill that gap are going to actually do well for society and shareholders and i don't think those things are mutually exclusive i actually think they work together and so as long as the brand isn't piggish and reinvests in society i think they'll see growth and i think we'll see more and more brands Uh, start to go down this road. I think, for me, one of the bigger surprises was Walmart this year. Walmart's got a long history of sustainability, but not a long history of being public on purpose topics. For them to send a letter to folks on both sides of the aisle saying, do your job, uh, and and that was in response to gun control, and the letter was a little longer than that, but it basically said, do your job. There might have been an "f" in there too uh, i think we're going to see brands have a voice that we haven't seen before and so uh, i think consumers are going to rally around that uh, and in some cases that will be polarizing and in some cases that might be uniting and i think we'll see brands uh, take both approaches
1: and, and carol if you're looking for a, um, a safer answer i think uh, tick tock is going to emerge as a platform uh, even even more strong, <laughs> even more strongly in 2020. I mean,
0: TikTok is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. I run out and get
1: myself. Yeah, uh, no, I saw.
0: It's got some great stuff, and it's got the goofy stuff and ridiculous stuff. Um, Saw a lot of it at Cannes last year. You know, what's interesting is that...
1: I want to play both sides of the long attention span and short attention span.
0: You know, what's interesting is that um, Cannes has uh, sent out its topics for next year. And um, regarding purpose, they're calling it Beyond Purpose. And they're talking about, uh, I think, getting into social issues um, as, uh, you know, in terms of like what's Colin Kaepernick and Nike or, you know, really taking a stand. Which I think is this, which to me, like, okay, last year was purpose, it can, and now this year is beyond purpose, you know, taking a stand. I, one of my predictions is there's going to be a lot of really bad um, taking a stand because it's the cool thing to do without any depth, and that scares the heck out of me. Because I think that there are great brands, um, you know, such as Patagonia or Nike or and many of the Unilever or, you know, P&G is doing great work with the talk and other things um, where they're backing them up with action, with action, which is what you say, and not just isn't this cool and it's going to be just creative. And so um, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about next year in terms of lots of missteps as well as good steps, too.
1: Carol, I just want to make, make sure I understand your point. You're taking a stand that people are going to take a stand. They're going
0: to take a stand, but they're going to misstep, I think, in a lot. Ha ha. You're taking you a go. stand, taking a stand. Jeff?
2: Well, first, I'm grateful for the chance to uh, be included in your podcast and look forward to collaborating in the future as as we can. And uh, I think that... Uh, I guess I'd like to be a little bit hopeful, uh, that next year, uh, we, you know, even though it is an election year, we see some improvement in sort of the broader societal issues that we have, uh, whether that's clean air or whether that's, you know, uh, food for, for people, you know, you know, sort of the big sustainable development goals. Um, I'm hoping that we see some real action and I do think, uh, there are a lot of brands that will do the right thing. I certainly uh, won't be surprised to see a few brands do the wrong thing either. But uh, but I'm, I'm more hopeful that uh well, that's good, good. We need hope. Think about that, as opposed and,
0: to apathy.
2: Purpose and purpose and profit. Yeah, I'm hoping people see that purpose and profit can
0: uh, work hand in hand uh, through business model innovation. And and Chris, we're going to give you a final comment too.
1: Jeff, thank you so much. I really appreciate your, your insight and your perspective. And, and I agree with you. You have to, you have, to have purpose, and it's got to be purpose plus one other thing in order for them to work in confluence. Well, thank you both, and uh, hopefully our
2: paths will cross again. I'm sure they will.
0: And I would love to, again, end with what we always ask our guests, which is, what is your purpose? Have a wonderful holiday season. And all, always, please send us comments, send us ideas for uh, guests to have on the show, anything that we can improve, because we are doing this to up level the power of business, the power of brands, the critical critical um, role that brands and companies and working with NGOs and experts on social issues we all need to take a stand and to participate to help our world solve its major problems so that we have hope versus hopelessness so have a great holiday and thanks both to you Chris and to Jeff
1: thank you both hey thank you all take care